Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I said like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. You could do a whole lot worse than being friends with a dude like Norbert Leo Butts. He's hilarious. And he does a lot of fun stuff cool stuff. He's an actor. He's a singer. He's a songwriter. He's won not one, but two Tony Awards for Best Actor in a Broadway Musical. He recently released a great album called The Long Haul. He's a cool dude. He's fun to hang around with. And I got to hang around with him at his home in New Jersey. We talked about all of these disciplines and how he approaches them and the, uh, the thought he puts in to his work is impressive. And in our discussion, it became obvious that the tool most important to him in all of these disciplines is empathy. And I really love that because it's one thing that's come up a lot during the course of these Wheels Off discussions the importance of empathy, the importance of seeing the other as equivalent to the self. You know, we, we are all one. And Norbert not only sees that, but uses that to make great art. And he's able to communicate so clearly about what it is he does and how he does it so well. Not that he would necessarily put it like that. He's a pretty humble guy, but he really does do a lot of different things at a really high level. And so it was so fun and cool to be able to sit and talk with him and pick his brain. I'm sure you're going to find a lot to love about this Wheels Off conversation with the great Norbert Leo Butts. I'm joined on this episode of Wheels Off by the great Norbert Leo Butts. Hi, Norbert. What's up, Rhett? How you doing, man? Really good. We're, good. we're in the kitchen of your new home. Of our new, yes, my new, new house. Sort of my halfway, my halfway done house. Your halfway house. It's my halfway house. <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm living through this renovation. We moved here three weeks ago, and the house was totally not ready to be moved into it. So I find myself for the summer, as you saw, my living room, our beds are in there. Three mattresses for my three daughters, three dogs. It's like, it's a bit like summer campy. At least that's what we were telling ourselves. Yeah. Like it's going to be, it was going to be totally awesome. And it, it's got to be over. It's got to, yeah. it's got to be done. Like I think two of my three daughters have seen me naked now. Oh. Like there's like no <laughs> time with my wife. It's like, okay. But in the theater, that's normal. Everybody, true, yeah. true, true. Yeah. So well, yeah. then that might be the answer to my first question, which is what creative project are you working on now and how is it inspiring you? Oh, I was, <laughs> you know, I listened to your show. I love your podcast. And I was, oh, no. dreading, I was dreading that question because I, I maybe for the first person that said, 
you know, very, very little right now. And that's kind of intentional. Yeah. Yeah. I've just come off a period of doing a whole, whole, whole lot. Um, like the past year and a half, it was, it was a Broadway show. It was three independent films. It was a TV series. It was this musical cabaret show that I, Help to create um, and a record release <laughs> yeah. in the past year and a half. So, um, so I feel like, and I'm used to this actually by now. Yeah, especially when I'm done with a run of a player for a character that I've really, really gone into. I always take this period. I used to feel like this low grade depression after I finished the run of something. How I'm could you like, not? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not so afraid of that anymore. But I do usually have like a kind of a fallow period where I just gotta like be a dad. You know what I mean? Garden. So then, this isn't the first time you've done this, where you take, where you just shut it down for a few couple of months and say, "No, okay." The the funny thing is, though, like you know, I'll talk to my shrink and my wife. You absolutely, even my agent will be like, <laughs> my agent will be like, "You are no, no." The only thing I'm saying is, "No, you're not working." And I'm like, "Yes, I totally agree." I'm taking August off, and like by next weekend, I'm like, you know, I'll be I'll be itching to, to get started on something. I mean, having said that, I write every morning. I, I, um, I'm, I'm always working on um, lyrics. I'm always working on poems. I'm always journaling. And a lot of that has to do with kind of just like a, a start of my day type of a thing. Is there a meditative quality yeah, to that writing? Definitely. Yeah. Do you? I notice you've got a really beautiful front porch that seems really relaxing. Is that where you go? Like cup of coffee? I'm starting to. I've only been here for three weeks, but I'm mm-hmm. finding that that's the place that I'm going to. Yeah, I'm really loving it. A front porch is a great, a great, great place to work. Um, um, on the first episode of Wheels Off, I spoke with Roseanne Cash, and the thing that she was working on right then at that moment was a musical theater project, and I think that you might have had... I was working on it with her. Yeah. That is so cool. Really cool. That's where I met Roseanne, and, you know, that's that's something that I hope is actually still in the pipe. Yeah. Um, so a, a lot of times I've participated in these sort of workshops of potential musicals or plays. Um, most of my work in theater has been done on new work, um, I'm not like a revival guy. Um, and that's a fun thing. And, and so I got a call by John Weidman, who had, was working on the script of Norma Ray, and he said, I'd love for you to come and, and read the part that was played in the film by John uh, Ron Liebman. I don't know if you remember the film Norma Ray. And he said, you know, the score's been written by John Leventhal and Roseanne Cash. And, I, that, you know, he didn't even get Leventhal out. And yeah. I was like, what? You know, um, I've always had sort of one foot in mostly as music fandom, but um, in kind of folk and country non-theater music and one foot in theater. I'm a huge fan of Roseanne Cash, huge fan. You know, um, her records, like like Interiors, was like a... I, I, I heard that record, and I, I really heard it. I'm just such a fan of hers. And John, you know, as a producer and a writer on so many people's stuff. And so they made this incredible score. Uh, it's so good, Rhett. It's so good. And so we worked on it for two weeks. And that process is basically like they get a group of actors, a um, few musicians, not a full band, but, you know, piano, guitar, drums, maybe a bass. And um, you work on the songs, the, the writer's 
uh, edit them, change them, maybe rewrite them. Um, you get it up on its feet, basically, so that you can have a clearer look at it. And so I got to do that with them, and I really hope it has some legs to go on to the next level. You know? oh, that's it's so incredible. Cool. You've got to hear this music. I can't wait to hear it. You've got to hear this music. And Roseanne is, you know, she's such a... She's great to write for the theater because, you know, if you look at her writing, you know, she comes from that Southern tradition. It's very character-driven, a lot of her stuff. It's very atmospheric. She's incredible with um, place and atmosphere. And Norma Ray takes place in, in the 70s and in, in North Carolina in a textile mill and this, this town that now we would say has you know trump has in his pocket you yeah. know um and she just she just nailed it she just nailed it with an authentic with an authentic roots vibe that you're not going to get from a broadway writer does that sure. make sense yeah 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 you would think uh, i mean I, <clears throat> I don't know as much about broadway as i've always felt like i should but it seems like it's a really long process. Dude, it's so long. And it's one of the reasons I'm doing less and less of it and really trying to branch out into other media and, and even make my own work. It's a really long process. And it can be really exciting. But I got really burned out on it, frankly. And, and in fact, the thing I did with Roseanne and John was just like, I got to get into a room with Roseanne and John Cash. Yeah. Um, I actually did another one two years ago with Daryl Hall because I'm such oh. a well, Daryl Hall <laughs> yeah. fan. Um, <laughs> um, it is. It's real collaborative. And, and for the actor, it can sometimes be diminishing returns. In other words, you get there and you help your, the writers develop this thing. Um, you're basically there to, 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 to kind of, in some ways, kind of be like sitting models for them so mm-hmm. that they can see the work. So it's a lot of capitulating. It's a lot of saying yes to them. And it's a, sometimes difficult to say, to do the creative thing that an actor can do and says, you know, this line isn't working and this is why. Yeah. And you should listen to me because I've done this a lot and I know that the building block isn't there to get this character from this scene to this next scene. And I would also, you know, I don't know, I'm 52 now. I've been doing this a long time. What do I have to lose yeah. to, to say people? And I found that I started enjoying less and less the kind of the amount of time. I just got impatient with all of it. Uh, sure. And it's funny because you come at it from an angle where you you write songs. You write really great songs. Yeah. And so you're not just an interpreter of other people's stuff. Yeah. Which is its own, I feel like, great thing. Totally. But so not only are you able to say, like, this doesn't sing or this doesn't come out of my mouth right. Right. But but you could walk in and say, and you know what would? Um, Is that something you've wondered about, is, like, being the driving force? I know you had a lot to do with the creative... Uh, work that went behind Two Hander, the yeah. show that you just finished the second run of that I saw that was fantastic. Oh, thanks. But is that something that you've done? I mean, have you thought about building a show? Is that even a thing? It is, and it's something that I've thought more and more about. Two Hander has was a part of that. Um, I found this really fun outlet for me creatively. Um, songwriting for me is, is it really is a hobby. I don't have. Um, uh, I write. When I, when I really need to, I don't have a strong discipline for songwriting. My craftsmanship, my musicianship, just, you know, dude, I mean, I'm sitting here across <laughs> from you who's, you know, I simply don't have the, the, the tools. I have lucked, I think, on the songs more than anything else. I'm trying to learn more and more about the architecture of what makes a good song. 
Um, but the last three years, that club 54 below that you saw two-hander at, they've been uh, really great to me saying, hey, man, we just want you to come and put something together. Um, and, and a lot of musical theater people, they'll go and they'll just kind of do a night of like Sondheim or, you know, they'll do their, you know, with their piano player and their bass player. And uh, I've never been of that world. I don't know a lot of musical theater. So the last three years I've gone and I, uh, last year I did a show there called Girls, 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 which was so fun, dude. It was so fun. I, I got this crazy idea um, uh, to, to do a song cycle using all um, uh, uh, songs that had female protagonists in the title. Um, and then, it's going to sound so pretentious, but it was actually really, really fun. I worked with a friend of mine who's a professor at Monmouth College, and, sh- and she does women's studies and performance arts. So I sort of looked at Jungian and Greek archetypes, female archetypes, and then found like the equivalent pop or rock or soul or rap song that kind of like illuminated that the sort of classical Jungian um, archetypes and then um, and then brought in my own reason for doing it which was at the time you know I have three daughters mm-hmm. a wife I have an ex-wife a mother and I have three sisters I have 17 nieces I'm often the only male wow surrounded by women and was going through this time when I just felt like I was fighting with all of, like, what am I missing? What am I missing? And so I, it, it just ended up being this really, really cool thing. And I think, oh, this is a fun form. Um, not much of a writer, but I love to curate songs. I love to to find, like, a thematic uh, narrative um, and, and do it. And the year before, I did one called Memory and Mayhem, sort of based on ideas of, of memory um, and those have been really 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 fun for me um, and, and it's pretty amazing to see you in a space that small because obviously you you fill up rooms a hundred times that yeah. size or whatever and um, I mean I, I know that I because I got to see two-hander the other night and your voice and your presence in a, in a space that small it made me have so much appreciation for the kind of specific talent that that you, that you have, but that I think makes people successful on a big stage like that. I mean, obviously, you do a lot of film work as well, and I don't mean to diminish or overlook no. that. But um, it sort of blows my mind how you're able to do the the Broadway stuff you do. But to see it in such a small space, it, for one thing, it made me realize that not anybody can do that. I mean, there's such it yeah. is such a specific skill set. Yeah, is that something? And I guess which leads me to my next question: When you were young, like I know you. You, you've always loved rock and roll. You've always loved songwriting. Was there a moment when you thought, I want to do this, but I think I want to do this maybe on stage or in front of a camera, like where you realized what your calling was? Was there an epiphany moment? Um, it's strange, Rhett. There was an epiphany moment. This is You're not going to believe me when I say this, and nobody ever does, <laughs> because I'm a very, uh, I've heard, you know, expressive performer I have a lot of energy I've got this vocal things that I I'm 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 actually shy and I'm actually don't um, my I don't have an instinct for it I, and I have to be really really honest about that I uh, an epiphany moment for me I was a really shy kid and was dealing with some difficult issues when I was a kid I'm from a really big family I'm one of 11 I'm the seventh of 11 
my dad was kind of an, you know, he was an ex-Marine. He was kind of a shit kicker. There was a lot of fear in the house. There was, you know, it was kind of not the safest place. And um, I'm from a family of singers. My grandfather, who I never knew, was from Quebec. Um, and he evidently had a gorgeous voice, could play anything by ear, fiddle, mandolin, guitar. And um, most of my seven brothers can all, we've all just been able to sing. We've all been able to harmonize. We all can just just growing up playing guitars and pianos and stuff like that around the house. And when I was about 14, my oldest brother, who's 10 years older than me, um, is a great guitar player. He sells insurance now, but um, used to make money doing sort of like Christian-y kind of concerts, like in church basements. He'd do weddings. He would do a lot of the youth masses and all that kind of stuff. And um, he knew I could sing and play piano. But I, I wouldn't do I wouldn't do it, uh, you know I wouldn't do it publicly. And so we were doing. A, he asked me. He said, "I'm doing a wedding. I need you to come sing. We'll be up in the choir loft, so no one will see you." And uh, I said, "Okay, I'll do it then." And he gave me this big solo to sing, and it was like a distant cousin. And my parents were there, but they couldn't see me. And um, after the mass, my mom said, oh, I'm so sorry you didn't get to sing your song. And I said, Mom, I did. And my dad was like, no, you didn't. That, some man was singing. And I was like, you guys, that was me. And, and I remembered that moment where my parents looked at each other and they just couldn't believe it was me. And I couldn't believe they didn't believe it was me. And I just got this moment where I was like, can I sing? Even though a lot of people were telling me that, I, I had to be told that I could sing. Yeah. So as I wanted to do it all secretly. So it was like in high school... I tried out for choir. My teacher heard me sing. She was called my parents. You got to get him into private voice classes. He's a singer. He's done, there's no other students I have like this. What? Private voice lessons. My parents didn't have any money. You know, that whole thing. I sort of had to be told that I could do it. And then when I got praise and, you know, you know, especially for my dad, then it was something that I was like, oh, I'm good at this hand. I get like all this positive stuff. And, um, I think that's initially where it started. And so if there was an epiphany moment that I may have been given something, it was around then. But in terms of me wanting to perform, um, I think that came from, that came from, uh, I, I think I, I, I was raised on TV, you know, like I said, we didn't have enough money and I was obsessed with movies. So it was like, I remember saying, like, it's going to sound dumb, but, like, James Cagney and, like, Yankee Doodle Dandy. And we had, a, like, five VHS tapes and stuff like that and one small TV <laughs> with the thing. And I must have watched it a hundred times. And I was obsessed with James Cagney. I was like, this guy can dance. He can do things with his body that are just incredible. But there's this... He's not like a Gene Kelly or one of these guys. There's, like, a, there's like a, something going else going on with him, you know? There's like an anger behind his dancing. There's, there's a, a menace in, in this musical that he's in. This is a real character. And I remember just obsessing over that and watching it and watching it. And so I think something started to click with me there where I was like, oh, I could. And so it was just really through movies and TVs and then wanting to emulate actors. I know it's something you ask people a lot about, but like, you know, then then you see your first Robert Duvall movie, and yeah. you're like, what, what's that? What's that? You know, seeing like the great Santini when I was, you know, twelve. What's he doing? And just obsessed with it. And then I just kind of start of. Then the movie, 
funny. You made Obsession. me think of Santini when you described your dad. Very well. That's why, of course, yeah. that movie was like you know resonated. I could find in the TV and in the movies and in the and all of that. I could find obviously what I was going through and feeling and didn't have words or could articulate it. So I just followed that. Yeah. Um, when uh, when I watch actors act, it, it, it's and the couple of times I've tried to do auditions and stuff and realized like, oh, this is way harder. Like when you look. The work you do, or look, Robert Duvall, when you were watching and learning, um, when he, when those micro movements in the face, the jaw muscle clenching, the, yeah. no, the nostrils flaring, and <laughs> I can't believe I'm asking such a specific, like, I love it. question. I love it. Are those movements intentional and thought out and planned specifically, or are you feeling something that then is inhabiting your face, like controlling those muscles? Hopefully, the latter. Yeah. Hopefully the latter, for an actor that would be at, at all, have the consciousness in his mind, right? I'm going to make my nostril flare here. I'm going to make this tear fall on this line, and I'm going to clench it. While what they're trying to do is to deeply connect with the other person, is to deeply try to pursue an action or an objective, to deeply understand the inner workings of the character so that they are... Um, outside of their minds, that there's a there's a physical, psychological action intention that they're consumed with, leaving no room to be have an eye on what my nose or what my lips or what you know what I'm saying. Those would definitely be the byproduct that the audience is reading as the psychology of what's happening to that character as he is pursuing. The objectives, the emotional and psychological objectives that the script says he has to. So, it it must, it must be, and and great actors, of which you know maybe someday, um, it's an complete ability to get to be so imaginative, to live so much in the imagination that it's not even that the camera disappears or the audience disappears. It's just like I don't give a shit. I'm yeah. so. Do you know what I'm saying? You must have that sometimes when you're trying to communicate a new song or when you're trying to or if you're interpreting a song that is lyrically so fucking perfect it yeah. takes all your focus it takes everything to do it that that just in the communicating of it, it takes takes all of your concentrations so that those outer things go away that's the goal doesn't happen a lot but that really is the goal it's funny it's like it, uh, it's something that comes up a lot in these conversations it's um, honesty or authenticity or connection is what we all strive for right yeah. and then but self-consciousness is the enemy of those things 1000% so many times I'll look at an actor on a screen and I'll think they're sitting in such a way that their stomach juts out like I would never be able to do that if I knew there was a camera pointed at me. Like I would have to sit up straight and suck my stomach in because God forbid anybody knows I don't have a six pack, you know. And so, but I feel like whenever I look at and I've noticed that about musicians too, like really cool musicians that I look up to. If sometimes in a photo they'll just be sitting in a super unflattering way, and I'm like, they're so cool yeah. that they don't have to suck their stomach in. Yeah, maybe that's a new level of cool. Yeah. Right? So again, if you. Um Sucking your stomach in mm -hmm. as an actor mm -hmm. um, might be the actual right action. Act, 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 act. Actors perform actions. Mm -hmm. Actors perform the actions that the, that, the, that the script and the character designates for you. It's your own imagination, creativity, how that gets to come out. So 
if that character that's got her mm-hmm. stomach or his stomach coming out is um, is that because um, we know from the script that there are substances in the body that might have taken away that self consciousness? Is it uh, is there something in the script that that we want to communicate with? having that posture, right? So in order to have your stomach out, your back's got to, your lower back's got to sort of collapse. This has got to come out. What makes somebody do that? Is it a depressed person that makes them sort of go like this, you know? Is it, um, what are the reasons for that behavior? Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. To sit like this would be a choice, we would call it, you yeah. know? What, 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 what are the psychological reasons to, 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 to do that choice? Um, so Rhett's, Self-consciousness about his own six-pack would have no, um, would not be useful information. Sure. And um, in in that in that process, so it's it's it's, but it's tricky though because you're 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 my vanity, my self-consciousness. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's a constant thing that you have to. These are Norbert's dogs, by the way. They're very sweet. They they're, are. They're little boys I, i'm wondering if uh, yeah i had to get all boy dogs yeah i live with all <laughs> all, girls. all daughters um god and i hope you'll forgive me because some of these uh wonky questions about acting are i just i, I always wonder them and i never get to ask people and I, I, I and i'm one of those people that can talk about it forever because well, I, I find it ever, so fucking interesting i don't know if you've taught acting but you seem I like have, you would do yeah. a great job yeah that was the intent that was what i was going to do to be honest with you Rhett. i was a student forever um, you know, I didn't move to New York until I was almost 29 years old. Interesting. Yeah, I was. I did a master's degree. I'm like the most overeducated yeah. fucking Broadway. I did a BFA, and then I traveled through Europe and looked at different European theaters, and and uh, I thought academia was where I was going to be. And um, I look back, and that was a more respectable choice, I think, for my parents <laughs> and for my ex-wife. Um, that was a far more that was a, the better option rather than moving to New York City and hitting auditions and doing off-Broadway theater and doing weird shit, which is eventually and, you know, what, what you have to do if you're going to be an actor. But I did, and then I went and did a master's, and then I went uh, down in Alabama. Down in Alabama. At, at, in Montgomery, Alabama, and then I taught for two years at Auburn. Um, wow. And that was going to be my thing. And then I found out that I had been burying. I didn't want to be the teacher... I, I wanted to be, let me do it for you. You know, I wanted yeah. to get up there and show the kid. You know, the same thing. I was listening to one of your, you interview somebody, and at some point you do find out you're not, you're not an audience member. You're not a, um, do you know what I mean? You're not, you, you don't want to be the instructor. You actually yeah. want to get Jen up. Kirkman had a moment uh, of epiphany in a comedy club when she just wanted to get up on stage and kick whatever dumbass comedian off. A little bit, you know, you're like, I think I can do that. Now I do get invited to teach from time to time, and I really enjoy it. Now, I, I now know that I want nothing to do with academic life in terms of a career. Talk about like a really, really, really hard career. Yeah. Like doing what you love to teach is such a tiny part of academia. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. all the other shit committees you have to be on and tenure committees and alumni weekends and, and office hours and that I want no, no, no part of. Yeah. But I do like standing up in front of um, hungry, pliable, curious actors and seeing, seeing what we can do. I well, find that really fun. You've lived through now so much of the stuff that is just theoretical when you're teaching. You know, like you've now gone out and True. done so much of it. Like I wonder about um, when you're describing inhabiting the character and not 
you're making choices that get you there, but then once you're there, you're living in the character. So you're not thinking about the flare of the nostril or the tension in the jaw. Um, and I don't know the, the, you know the true meanings of words like method acting or anything like that. And I don't know to what extent that is a part of what you do. I'm sure you've worked with people that, that utilize those kind of things. Yes. I, but I do wonder the pitfalls of that. Like you talk about your own shyness that you've had to overcome, clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've done a great job because, uh, no, like you said, nobody would guess that about you. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by these internally generated obstacles mm-hmm. and how we not only get past them, but maybe use them to make us better. And I wonder yes. about how, when you're inhabiting a character, how, how hard is it to be that person? How hard is it to stop being that person? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Some, there's, a, there's this question that I had an acting teacher used to say, and you can put, a, you can put down, in a, you're playing a part, right? And you can write in one list, um, you, uh, uh, these are all the things that I have in common with the character, right? Uh, gender, blah, 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 geography, basic age, whatever. And then these are all the things I do very differently, right? Like... Uh, I'm not a cop. <laughs> I've never murdered anyone. Uh, whatever. You put these things, and then you, and then you start um, a game of, um, and then you start to negotiate. Really, you start to sort of, um, you start to sort of open up your mind. Okay, I've never killed anyone, and I'm playing someone who's killed someone. Um, have I ever wanted to kill someone? What are the types of things that have gotten me to the point where I felt so out of control? You know. And then you start to bridge the gap. And in some ways, I suppose, and I believe this is true, that, that good acting is it's a, it's a radical form of empathy. It's a radical form of, um, of, of, of empathic imagination. And, and I guess what I mean by that is that what you want to try to do is find as many of the common denominators with the people who seem so, so far from you. And something that helps you to do that, we were talking before about how I sometimes felt like my calling was academia, and sometimes I kind of still do. I loved being a student. I loved being a student. I was a really good student. And I liked the structure of it. I liked the structure of being told, of being given a whole bunch of really interesting things to read. Um, something would spark my curiosity. I like the rabbit hole, and then I like the whole safe cocoon structure of of being in, of being in college. You know, um, I like it so much. I went to graduate school, and then I started to pursue a PhD after that. I I um, I'm glad I didn't do that. But what I do love most about what I do, and this is what. Um, I just did this television series based on Bob Fosse, and I got to play the writer Patty Chayefsky, who's this fascinating guy. It was directed by Tommy Cale, who directed Hamilton. The script was written by, based on this book by Sam Wesson, who's this brilliant guy that went to Brown and wrote this thing. I got to do like a deep fucking dive into like New York City in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, where... Uh, where Chayefsky was working, Bob Fosse was working, people like, um, you know, actors like Rip Torn and, 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 and McCarthyism and, 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 and to take a deep dive into that thing. And you go so, 
I just love, I love that more than anything. It, it, it appeals to the curiosity that I, that I have in me. It feels like I'm getting to do this free course. And then I get to sort of take what I learn and then directly put it into, in, into the work details that you find in books. You know what I mean? Um, that audiences won't, won't even know. I find it so, so, so much fun. And so that helps you get to that place. You know, it's just doing that deep dive into the research. And it's I, I, the best part about what I get to do. Yeah. And do you find that the, the shyness um, that you started off having to overcome, is that still a part of what drives you and um, makes you... Or have you found a way around that? I found a way around it. Um, I still always have it. I still always have stage fright before I, before anything. Um, I mean, before anything. And I'm sometimes I'm really shocked by it. I'm like, but it really does become sort of like an annoying sibling or something. Or like, you know, you're, you're, you, you, you do get to a point where you, um, you can feel it without being consumed by it. Um, but it's taken a lot of practice, a lot of practice, and a lot of technique, breathing techniques, and a right. creative imagining techniques, and all of that I had to do. Um, Maybe beta just, blockers for a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Before I got sober. <laughs> you know, <laughs> anything that would help. Um, it means that you care, right? Yeah, I think so. That's the thing. No, seriously, I think you're 1,000% right. You, you, you stop beating yourself up about it. You stop saying, oh my God, if I were better at this, if I, were, yeah. if I had more technique, I wouldn't have these things. How come other people don't have these things? And I think you're right. I want this to go, I want this to be as good as it can absolutely positively, positively be. And that's a, that's a positive motivator. Yeah. I did a gig at an old folks home yesterday. I know this isn't about oh. me. Sorry, but this is Stop right there. Can we just do the whole <laughs> podcast right, on... I'm just a- <laughs> A vol- was it a volunteer situation? Yeah, was it just, an old 97's fan no, just, who was just, 97? The mayor of New Paltz is this really sweet guy, and I asked him a while back, is there, is there something I could do that would help just around here? He's like, well, there's this old folks on Woodland Pond in New Paltz. God, I love this. And they don't, you know, people don't do anything for them. And, um, and, I, and so it took me forever to schedule it. And, Dude, I'm man crushing on you so oh, hard stop, right stop, now. Stop, stop, stop. It doesn't... It's no, not, I think that's so cool. I know. It's not charity unless you I, brag about it. No, 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 I know, but I think... What, Keep going. I you know, so I walked, I walked into that place yesterday, and it was so sweet. And all these old people with their walkers. I was more nervous for that 45-minute set of standards than, than I am for, like, a late-night TV show taping or something. Where course, if I screw up man. on that, it's going to go viral. And um, it just, but it really you did standards think, for him. You I did, did standards like, somewhere over the rainbow. Oh what a wonderful gosh. world! Gosh, and uh, and talked about what you know. What I found out was if you, I'm sorry, I've hijacked your podcast. I don't if, care if I say what year the song is written. They get so excited. Uh. Like Big River in 1958, Johnny Cash wrote the song that he often talks about as his proudest moment as a songwriter. He wrote the song Big River, and they're like 1958. They all get all excited about the year. It's the greatest thing, isn't it? It's such a gift, such a beautiful thing. Before when I was talking about curating songs, yeah, I love that. I love the story behind the song. Yeah. I love the story behind the writing of the song. You, we, you and I were talking about. I, I never knew that um, the Beatles tune. Um, uh, you, you and me, right? Is that, what's that song um, called? You told two me. Two of us. Two of us. You yeah. told me it was actually like Paul McCartney's love it. song to John Lennon, yeah. kind of, about their long relationship. Incredible. How complicated it was. Just then, adds more like reverberation yeah. around how. I mean, well, songs are real things, right? It's 
I, um, Only when someone sings them, right? That's true. They don't, it's or someone like, hears them. It's like What's they, a song if it's it not? It only lives if it's... Truly. Was it Yip Harburg? Was he the one that wrote What a Wonderful World and then was blacklisted throughout the 50s? Wow. Tony Bennett passed on the song. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, Louis, Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong, yeah. With it. Which, wow. how perfect was it that Louis Armstrong, because it's all about, in, you know, togetherness and inclusion. And, of course, of course. But, um, um, anyway, I, th- I, I love that, but I, I, I just, I, 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 I'm not to like, whatever, give you any, any ego about doing a do-gooder yesterday, but I, <laughs> but I think what's cool about that, and I'm trying to find ways to do that too, um, my wife actually is right now doing a, uh, it's this program called Sing and Learn. Remember Free to Be You and Me? Yeah, when yeah. we were little, loved that fucking record. And she's, a friend of hers has created this curriculum um, using really great, fun music. They're doing sort of emotional intelligence, social cues reading. They're doing it for pre-K, kindergarten, first and second grade, uh-huh. right? Diversity training. They're incorporating um, sign language with it, inventive play, all this multi-stuff and around music. And she's actually doing, a, doing it for a group great. of autistic kids this morning. It's just what's so good about it is just, again, just that getting out of your own... For me, my own head, you know. Yeah, it's just so. It's in, as my friend says, it's an itty bitty shitty committee up there a lot of the time, <laughs> and so to do those things that sort of plug you into the, your community and. Um, What's it, I, it's funny? This is something that hasn't really come up. I don't think in these conversations I've had with people, but is the career and one's own awareness of one's career is that one of the obstacles we have to overcome, right? Because when we do this for you know, autistic kids, old folks. When we do this for our friends, just that I sang at some at a friend's birthday party the other night, and I sat down to sing, and the the purity of performing right in a in a no you know uh, pressure situation. Yep. Like, is the career somehow the enemy sometimes of the art? One hundred percent. I found that constantly. I find that constantly. Um, I'm asked to sing a lot. For family thing, you know, <laughs> this enormous family, weddings, and memorials, and funerals, and benefits, and, you know, everybody is in the theater has got to make their money. I, 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 there's, every spring is benefit season. I mean, I go, I go round and round, and I can do them all week. And I want to bitch about them, but I try to keep showing up for them. Um, and because it's 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 so true it's some for me something has to mitigate that constant um some of those just like negative voices comparing and despairing about where other peers are um and especially in acting man and especially in in this business where like there's such inequity between what guys you know like on network tv are paid for literally speaking you know, <laughs> words that my eight-year-old would write better and what you know friends of mine who are who are doing free Coriolanus Shakespeare in Central Park right now are getting are getting paid you know like the inequity is I mean you can talk to that too it's just very hard not to get to get cynical right it's very hard not to get um uh 
And I had none of that. None of that is good for me. None of that is good for me in terms of getting up the next day. And, and oh, it's so hard. Compare and despair. I've never heard that before. I'm, I'm assuming that's something that people have said. Com- comparing and despairing. Yeah, man. It's like it's a, it's a it's a it's a really 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 hazardous thing to do. Um, yeah. You know, other people's successes are not your failures. It's no. like that whole that whole idea. That took me a long time to get my head around. Um, because I started late, and 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 a lot of times it comes from outside sources. You know, every t- I feel like every time I do something, you know, an agent or manager from me, ah, oh, this is this is going to be the thing, dude. This is going to be the thing. They're, like the calls are going to be nonstop. You know what I mean? Or yeah. you start shooting something, or you start your first day of rehearsal. You, you got an Emmy nomination for this, dude. You get you get a, it's, First fucking day happens all the time, and you do your best to keep all that shit out of your mind. But you're just like, shut up, shut up. And you know, I don't let. I really try not to let it bother me anymore. But one thing that helps to ameliorate it definitely is just, like you said, having friends over and and sitting in there and and singing songs. You know, doing a communal act of, of. song sharing or reading my wife and i do play reading sometimes with oh, friends of ours, which is so fun man um i was hoping for a second you were gonna say the thing that ameliorates it is sitting there looking at the awards i have won <laughs> <laughs> no, no that's the worst right i, I have a, a friend of mine who's super brilliant but has been a part of other things where other people have i don't mean to out this person but but he and i um were uh, the other people he's been involved with have gone on to be much bigger and and i feel like that's you know, that's, that can describe a lot of what I've done, too. Like, a lot of my peers have gone on to have way bigger careers than I've had. I'm not complaining. I love my career. Yeah. But he, he came over. We were doing a thing one time. We're on the side of the stage. He comes over, and he says, uh, um, yeah, I was on this radio show today, and the DJ asked me the worst question. And I get asked this all the time. Do you get this? It's like, all these other people you've worked with are much more successful than you now. How does that make you feel? <laughs> I can't believe people would say stuff like that. Holy shit. That aren't the people living in my brain. Right? Because those people say it all the time. Right? Oh, God. Okay, so when you were 21 years old, you were still years away from even really pursuing what has wound up being your life's work. Yeah. Um, I mean, in in the the way that you do it now. But so, uh, if you were to go back and give your 21-year-old self in today's world uh, advice, what would you tell yourself? My 21-year-old self in today's world. Oh, my word. Yeah. It's so... God, that's so hard. It's, it's so hard to overestimate what the internet has meant to... How different. <laughs> I can't even... My mind can't even almost get around it because I'm 52. I mean, there was, there was nothing. Um, but you do have daughters that are right around that age totally actually my oldest daughter is is 21 and she's born in october of 97 and she is literally the first group of babies in all of humanity who have only been raised with a smartphone who don't have any who have no concept of a life before a smartphone starts literally with my oldest kid um and so that's kind of a weird lens to look through but what would i tell my 21 year old self um well, it's so funny. I I would definitely tell my twenty one year old self, you know, what I just told you. Other people's success is not your failure. But I would also say, like, 
don't listen to your older self. I would say don't take, <laughs> don't take anyone's advice or don't. I really mean that. I was such a people pleaser, still am, but now understand the perils of it. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was still so ensconced in this idea that, um, uh, you know, fear-based decision making and 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 people pleasing is 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 just such a. It's 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 not a solid foundation to build to build good work on. I had to really really lose a lot of that. Um, uh, but you know what? I did something when I was actually I turned twenty one. Actually, I look back. I look back at my twenty one year old self with some sense of awe and like, where did you get the balls? I was twenty years old. I'd never been out of the country barely out of the state of Missouri. So I was raised in St. Louis, and then when I was seven, my dad bought a big, dilapidated farm, even more rural, like an hour and 40 minutes from St. Louis, middle of nothing. You know, it's just burned down trailers, and it's been devastated by crystal meth, just a really depressed place. I had to get out. And I was going to college in St. Louis, Missouri, and I looked up at a, a board, a bulletin board, and there was a program in London that I could write an essay for. My grades were good enough. I applied for it. I didn't even tell my parents. Worked at an olive garden for the summer, made enough, and flew over to London and did a semester over there and then dropped out of college and stayed for a whole other year. So for a year and a half, I was in London. Actually, it took me almost six years to get my undergrad degree. And I look back. I didn't know a soul. Yeah. I lived in some real sketchy situations. I went and saw amazing art all the time, theater. I saw incredible music that was happening. I got a job at a pub and got money under the table. I started this kind of whole life and um, until I ran out of money so badly that I had to come <laughs> crawling back home. But I look at the, the, the nerve that I had. I'd never been on an airplane before. Wow. And um, I, don't, I think I just was, looking back, I just needed like a radical change and I just sort of ran. Um, but I'm, I'm so grateful for that experience. So I'd maybe look at my 21-year-old self and said, where'd you get the courage to do that? Could I get some of that back? Yeah. And, you know? Um, I mean, obviously I have a family now and so it's not easy, but what in even small ways can I just say, I love you all, but I got I, I, I to gotta go and work on this thing. I got to go take this big risk, you know? Yeah. It's so cool, dude. I wonder how that slips away as we get older. I guess we have more to lose. I have a lot more to lose, and you know, responsibilities come and all that kind of stuff. But I like to think that there's a way, hopefully, that I can even the spirit of that. You know what I mean? If I can keep that, just even the open openness to kind of take a big. That sounds crazy. Yeah. What um, might be fun? And uh, when I do that with choices I make, you know, I almost always have a an amazing experience. And yeah. when I do it because God, I'm running out of money, I don't want to do this, but I got to take this gig, or God, I really don't want to do that thing, it's, it's like 99% of the time I'm, yeah. I'm left disillusioned and dissatisfied. So, Well, I think as a performer, I think that bravery comes through in you every time I've seen you doing anything. Oh, thing. thanks, man. And I just... I don't know. I love your thoughtful approach to all of this. And I really appreciate you talking to me on Wheels Off It today. was so fun, man. I'm such a huge, you know, you're my man crush. I don't mind saying it. Aww. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 
All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.